Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. For over 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of Acadian identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchy to bridge the language gap. Oh yeah, they called me French. Yeah, oh yeah. Some of them called me Cajun. No, I didn't mind at all. As long as they didn't call me Kunas. <laughs> Ned Arsenault. A Cajun from Lafayette, Louisiana, served as the quartermaster sergeant in charge of supplies for the U.S. Army's 7th Corps headquarters under the command of General J. Lawden Collins. Of the 450 men in that headquarters unit, Ned was the only one who could speak French. As such, his job as the quartermaster took on a bigger role once they landed in Normandy, France on D-Day. Ned grew up in the country on a farm with parents who could not speak English. They were descendants of Louis Arsenault, an Acadian who secured a land grant in the Lafayette area upon arriving in Louisiana from Acadie after the expulsion. Oh yeah, I couldn't say a word of English until I started school. My parents couldn't, they couldn't, uh, well my daddy could sign his name and he could figure numbers. He couldn't write a sentence, you know, but figures, he had it. Uh, he was also a contractor. Mm-hmm. He contracted to build houses. And he, you'd give him a blueprint, and he'd figure out every piece of lumber that would go into that, mm-hmm. that building. Louis Pierre Arsenault, who was portrayed as a, uh, an evasion poem, I'm the seventh generation from him. He came in in, uh, in Louisiana uh, when they were expelled in 1755, and then he had settled around New Orleans. But then he came and got a land grant. He got a land grant uh, from the Spanish government. The Arsenal properties began at Vermilion River, up to the Mermentor River. They have a, they have their uh, uh, Orsano Cemetery They're right in the back of Mir. There's a, uh, all of that, that was all, all Orsano property. Like you go, you go around there and you can't find nobody else but Orsano's. I had the pleasure of interviewing Ned on two occasions, first in 2004 and again in 2006. He was one of the first World War II veterans to tell me stories about the benefits of being a Frenchy Cajun in France. As you will hear, he was quite the storyteller. Like most from his generation, he had never ventured far from his home out in the country. But when Uncle Sam made the call to arms, the Cajuns enlisted in droves and wound up in all four corners of the globe. From Lafayette, I went to uh, Camp Livingston. It was a brand new camp that they had just built in the woods over there by, by Alexander. 
And so uh, uh, we got there. Uh, in fact, all four of us that had eaten it, we sat in the back. It was all uh, soldiers gone, not soldiers yet, but uh, inductees. Had one lady on there. And I had that trip. And so when the bus started, one of the fellows said, Hey, you got that trip? Let's have a, let's have a drink. Oh, wait, wait. One of them said, Wait, that's the lady in front. We're going to go and ask her if it's all right for us to drink. So he got up and he went in front. He had that lady. He said, We have a bottle of whiskey. And he says, We're going. I don't know when we're coming back, but we're going to the army. You mind if we have a drink? Oh, hell no, I'll have a drink with you. So oh, she, she, had, she had the first drink out of the bar. And so I was sent to Camp Blanding, Florida. Every morning, the uh, sergeant would come out, blow his whistle, and everybody had for formation in front. Mm -hmm. Then he'd holler some names. Joe, Tom, go, go, go. You're going to leave this afternoon at so-and-so on a train, so-and-so, to go somewhere. Tell them where, where you're going. One morning we got up, blew the whistle. We were two of us left. A fellow by the name of Floyd Bourgeois from Baton Rouge mm -hmm. and myself. We were in the same tent. And we got up. The sergeant says, well, he says, everybody's gone. He says, uh, you fellas going to take a train this afternoon at 4 o'clock and you go to Birmingham, Alabama and they'll have a, uh, a car waiting for you at the station when you get there tomorrow morning. And we figured that the only reason we would last two, the sergeant could pronounce our name. Arsenault and Bourgeois. So, <laughs> that's how we, so we landed up at Birmingham, Alabama. And so uh, we kept on and then uh, December the 7th, 1941, Bourgeois and I, were eaten, we had eaten dinner with a family. We had gone to church, and uh, we, on Sundays, the cooks never cooked. Because mm -hmm. the people, we'd go to church or something, and we'd stand on the street. People would stop by, come have lunch with me, come have lunch with me. And so, uh, uh, we were listening to the radio. We didn't have no TV to the radio. And so at, uh, it was about uh, 3 o'clock. There comes a flash. All 7 Corps headquarters report immediately to headquarters. War has been declared. Following nearly a year of training in California, Ned and the 7th Corps headquarters shifted gears to the East Coast and then set sail for England in early 1944 in preparation for the Allied invasion of Europe. During his time in England, he met up with two of his cousins, one of whom, Raoul Arsenault, was a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division who was part of the first group to land in France. He was in the glider section. And on D-Day, they took off first, you see. Yeah. And, and they, in fact, we were on a ship at Southampton, England, and we could see them fly over. Venture down on the side, huh? Yeah, we could see them fly over. And my cousin was a sergeant. Uh, 
And so they had one fellow, they called him French, because he was just like me, Cajun like me. And so they had one fellow that was sitting on the window, by a window. Mm -hmm. So he asked my cousin, he said, French, he said, I don't like to sit by that window. He said, can you, you, you and I change place? Oh, yeah. Because he's a jolly good fellow, you know, good hearted. So he changed. And they, when the pilot went, uh, when they landed in the head, uh, the head hedgerow, and all up on that that tra uh, that uh, uh, glider, glider got killed except my cousin. They crash landed in the, in that. Uh, my cousin, the only one, and we landed. We were I was in a sheep with a driver, and uh, that was uh, in LST. We had. Uh, Jeeps and trucks, and so when we landed, it was about about nine o'clock in the morning on June the sixth. Oh yeah, oh yeah, do I remember? No, a lot of people, a lot of boys got killed. When we landed, you'd see those bodies just floating all over. And you landed at Utah. Utah. Do you remember which section? In the days ahead, Ned and his quartermaster team worked around the clock to gather and distribute supplies, rations, ammo, equipment, gasoline for the 7th Corps headquarters. Within days of securing the beachhead, the entirety of 7th Corps, which included four infantry divisions, turned north up the Cotitan Peninsula to capture the port city of Cherbourg. As the quartermaster and a French speaker, Ned was sent in along with a Catholic chaplain to locate a French priest as the American forces advanced on the enemy-occupied city. Following street-by-street -street fighting and the surrender of a major German fortress, Ned and the chaplain made a rather interesting discovery, one that every member of 7th Corps headquarters got a taste of. And so we we went, the Jackie uh, Chaplin and I, and we see a German hospital. Oh, I said, we're going to find out from there if we, there's a, a priest or something uh, close by. Oh, he said, we can't go in there. I said, yeah, I said, you've got a man. They can't do that. Neutral. So we went in and uh, met, uh, met a nurse. So in French, I said, uh, where is the priest? How, how would you say that in French? Est-ce que vous avez un prêtre ici? Oh, yeah. So she went and got some fellow and uh, came in and Father Gleason spoke Latin to him. And he didn't understand a word. What, and so Father Gleason said, the priest said, let's get out of here before we get killed. So we took off and we made another nurse. And so I asked her, oh, I said, over there, over there, over there. I said, come through. Oh, no, no, no. I said, oh, yeah. So I had my pistol kind of shoved it in her ribs, you know. I said, oh, yeah, you're going to show her. So she came at the, it was a, an enclosure, uh, enclosure. She came up to the street and she says, Straight ahead as a priest. So we went, knocked, 
priest comes out and says, Ah, America, America, entre, entre, come in, come in. So we get in, in the cave. And that was about, I guess about, about noon in that day. Uh, so we stayed there till about 3, 3.30, about 3 o'clock. So I, I told the colonel, uh, the chaplain, I said, look, I said, it's 3 o'clock. Uh, the general wants that uh, city liberated by 4 o'clock. I said, we have to get to, see, this was a big fort. It was underground. So the big fort underground. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and uh, there was a, a German headquarters there in, the, in that fort. And so, uh, but by the time we got to the, because they were still fighting, and uh, a GI would get killed, he'd get he'd fall, you know, we'd go to his help if he dead. Priest would give him absolution, you know, mm -hmm. attended that. And so we finally got there about 4 o'clock, and they were taking all those Germans out, out of the fort. Prisoners. Prisoners, yeah. They were sending them to Seven Corps headquarters, because Seven Corps headquarters was responsible for the liberation of Sherbert. They had four divisions under Seven Corps. Uh, they say they had the 4th Division, the 30th Division, the 9th, and the 9th Division, and the 1st, 1st Division, the number 1 Red, right? Yeah. That's 4th Division. That took Triple. And uh, so, when we getting out, and see, we want food. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have any with to go. So, anyhow, after they took all those Germans out, Father Gleason said, Ned, said, let's go see if we can get some loot. So we went in. It's like a big hall all the way down there. And then he has offices and all kind of warehouses all in the, in the on each side. And we'd go in and open the door. Uh, nothing for us to do. Nothing there. Finally, uh, Father Gleason opens the door. He looks in and says, Ned, come here. Come see, Ned. Uh, warehouse full of liquor. The priest was in heaven, so to speak. <laughs> heaven. He says, what in the hell are we going to do? I said, well, Father, I said, all we can find, uh, get, we had some uh, American whiskey in there, had some uh, scotch, had some, uh, we had a each of musette bag, you see. We always had a musette bag, we had some ration uh, mm -hmm. in, in there, in case we get caught somewhere. Anyhow, I said, let's put each other. A bottle or two in there. Okay, so we went, we got each bottle of cognac and put in. We get outside, there was a MP, seven core, uh, a seven core Jeep, uh, uh, MP, with a radio. Oh, I said, wait, <laughs> if we don't have no ride, I said, we've got to get around. So again, I uh, told the driver, I said, you got to get seven core headquarters for me. Get General Collins. I said, I want to speak to General Collins. So he gets on the radio and he calls uh, General Collins. And so somebody came, one of his secretaries uh, came. I said, I want to talk to General Collins myself. So General Collins, I said, General, I said, we at Fort, that fort, and I said, we, Fort Eglinton and I discovered a warehouse full of liquor. He said, go ahead. I said, yeah. 
I said, man, I said, they've got all gone. Wine, cognac, anything you want. Bourbon and all. He said, man, he says, stay right where you are. He said, I'm going to send six trucks with a detail on each truck. He says, when they get there, start filling one truck. Fill the truck, uh, six by six, fill it up, and when you've got it loaded, send it right straight to headquarters here. Because you were the warrant officer. Yeah. The you, you were the quartermaster. Yeah. yeah. You were in charge of all the supplies. Yeah. And right. one of the main supplies was yeah. liquor. So <clears throat> I had five trucks gone. They were all loaded, gone to seven court headquarters. I was loading the se seven. The sixth court, the sixth truck. So there comes a, a general, one who's a service of supply, mm -hmm. a general. Mm -hmm. He comes there and says, Hey, soldier, he says, What the hell are you doing here? I said, I'm loading liquor, sir. He said, Loading liquor, he said, Unload that damn thing. Yeah, he said, You don't have no business going there. I said, Wait. I said, General, I said, All the respect to you. But I said, General J. Lawton Collins told me to fill that truck up for him. Tomorrow morning, he says, I want you to go to each division headquarters with one truck. To each. That's four, four divisions. That's four trucks. He says, I want you to go and uh, bring that and tell him compliments uh, of J. Lawton Collins. So I went and I went to each division. Then he says, listen, then he says, there's two trucks left. He says, one's for me and one's for you. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, but he said, deadline those trucks. He said, let them uh, ration and quarters here with us. So we had the, the trucks with us all the time <laughs> from Sherbury Gone. Quartermaster Ned Arsenault certainly had the knack for finding items of material value for his troops and for his commander. That Cajun French language that many from his generation viewed as a handicap before the war became extremely valuable in France, especially throughout the rural countryside. My French and my Cajun uh, helped a lot in the, in the army. Oh, I knew what it meant to be a Cajun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I helped a lot because uh, I could go out in the, in the country and uh, supplement our, you know, uh, food like uh, getting eggs and stuff like that and uh, vegetables for uh, our, our kitchen to prepare for us. Yeah, getting, getting all kinds of things. Helping out with uh, uh, <clears throat> people who, uh, some of the fellows who didn't uh, understand French and they wanted something like they, they wanted to go and purchase something for their wives back home or something. And they, they, I'd always accompany them and interpret for them. Oh, yeah. Whenever General Collins would say, well, Ned, I need some eggs. Fresh eggs. I don't know. He said, not just for me, but for the whole thing. Try to find an egg merchant. So I'd go around and I finally, I got one. How do you ask for eggs in French? Dessert. 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 And, uh, well, we were in... Oui, dessert. Huh? Dessert, yeah. <laughs> we were in Canaton, France. 
uh, just below St. Mary Lee. And that's where I met uh, Egg Merchant. And I went there and uh, I told him what we needed. Uh, I don't know how many dozen I wanted them. I had, I had to figure it out, you know, how much dozen of Oh, yeah, we can figure that. So, get in this out. Come on in, have a drink. Have a cognac, uh, Calvados. Worst damn thing I ever tasted. It was not the good one, that was that rock gut stuff. Oh. And then you serve that with some, something like coffee. Put that in coffee. Shit. But I got the eggs. <laughs> And the time I needed some more, I'd go back. Ned continued on in that capacity as an interpreter for the general and as the head supply man for all of 7th Corps. He participated in numerous battles, including the Falaise Gap and the Battle of the Bulge. And he wound up all the way at the Ebb River in Germany at the end of the war. He came home, got married, and began his long career as the postmaster of Lafayette. He stayed in touch with his fellow comrades on occasion until a few decades later when the call to put on a 7th Corps reunion fell in his lap. Oh, General Collins? Oh, oh, no. I, uh, he and I got along fine. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I accompanied him uh, many times, you know, when he uh, in France, when he was going somewhere and needed an interpreter, he'd always bring him. Oh, yeah, that was a great man. Uh, when I made the first reunion here in Lafayette, uh, I had sent notices, you know, to all my you know, friends that I had the, uh, had a, a list. And uh, General Collins called. He says, Ned, he says, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Algiers in New Orleans, but he says, I've never been to the country. A Cajun country. He says, I'd like, uh, I'll, I'll go to the reunion only if you promise that you're going to take me around in, uh, in the Cajun country. And so he did. He came, and man, uh, my wife and I took him all over every island in New Iberia and St. Martinville, all over. Oh, yeah, oh, he enjoyed that. As luck would have it, Ned's dependable skills as a quartermaster from back in the Army and his expert knowledge of the postal system led to his informal appointment, thanks to General Collins, as 7th Corps' permanent annual reunion planner and president. He went on to organize these reunions for the next 40 years. The practice of speaking Cajun French persisted among the returning veterans, their spouses, and of course the older generation. Yet, as modernity took its course during the initial post-war years, fewer parents taught their kids French. The reasons for this are multifaceted and complex and have plagued scholars and teachers and cultural advocates and Cajun society in general for more than half a century. Those veterans, many of whom remembered the struggles and sacrifices of their families during the Depression and wartime, returned home in the wake of a growing post-war economic boom and prosperity unprecedented in history. Parents wanted their children to have a better opportunity in a modern, educated American society. Speaking and writing good English was seen as a prerequisite for that. 
it was key to being accepted into the rapidly advancing, upwardly mobile middle class. Of course, many did not want their kids to experience the same level of discrimination or prejudice that they had to endure in school in the 1920s and early 30s. So many parents of that generation simply abandoned French at home. Like my children, I was, they were born right here in Lafayette. All the neighbors spoke uh, English. And so they, they, we taught them English first instead of French. You know, and then they went to start in school and there was no French there. My son, my son can get along a little bit uh, by talking uh, like the black community. Mogen, Mouvini, Mokuri. Because when he was small, he had a, a horse. Had, uh, had uh, given him a horse and he kept it. Horses kept it at, at mamas in, in the country. And on Saturdays, he'd go spend it the weekend at, at, uh, at mamas. Uh -huh. And we had a, a tenant, a black tenant that uh, would do the crops and all that. And uh, 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 he would take care of the horse and then he'd saddle the horse and feed the horse and everything for Johnny when Johnny went. <laughs> so that's why he learned it a little bit. <laughs> All of my age, you know, uh, uh, in the country, with the horse nose and all of that, the relatives, they all spoke French. My, my children, they understand, but they can't ca carry a conversation. And that's, that was our mistake. We, uh, we failed to teach them French instead of English. To provide some perspective on this, we've invited Ned's son, John Arsenault, to come on the program. Welcome to the Frenchie Podcast, John. Thanks, Jason, for having me on your program to talk about my father, a veteran of World War II. My father grew up on a farm speaking only French, Acadian French, that is. And when he was enrolled in school, he was not allowed to speak French and was punished if he did so. As a boy growing up, my father and mother would talk to each other in French exposing me to the language. Not knowing, I would pick up words and meanings here and there. My grandparents also spoke very little English, which was also influencing my ability to speak and understand the French language. I recall hearing my father's stories about his time in the Army and landing on Utah Beach on D-Day. His ability to speak the French language enabled him to act as an interpreter to obtain any intelligence that was needed. He was a supply officer for the 7th Corps, commanded by General Lawton Collins. Many times he had to use his French-speaking ability to procure whatever supplies that were needed. There were others from the Acadiana region also who used their French-speaking ability in the war effort. Thanks, John, for coming on and for sharing those stories with us. We will leave the last words of wisdom to the Frenchy Cajun of the 7th Corps, Ned Arsenault. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pity, you know, that uh, we're losing it. But uh, I'm sure that it's too cool to feel if they continue uh, that. I think that we're going to keep on some of it. Well, a lot of us are going to be lost, but uh, we're going to keep some of it. Our generation, do we see we'll never have another generation again. Every one of them. It was from the private on down to the 
generals. They didn't know if they're coming back or not. But they just had that, that uh, enthusiasm to, to get in, to fight for our country. Uh, that's, that's what we went for. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Terrio. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. We've been at this program for a good while, and we'd like to hear from you, the audience members. When time permits, please visit jasonterrio.com, click on the contact button, and send us a message. Stick with us as we plan to make a rather important announcement in the near future. We'd like to take a moment to thank one of the early partners of this program, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, Codafil. The Frenchie Podcast music is provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura from the Center for Louisiana Studies.